Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Outward, the show from Slate, where we try to expand the LGBTQ conversation outward. Get it? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> to as many queer perspectives and people as possible, except for George Santos. I'm Brian Lauder, <laughs> an editor at Slate, and if you're hearing my voice, it means that we somehow got a podcast made in the midst of one of the most heinous Mercury retrogrades of my life. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. And I'm sad to say that our usual third co-host, Jules Gill-Peterson, can't be with us this month, but she will re-emerge for some extra spicy Pride episodes next month. That's right. Episodes with an S. Yeah. Bringing bonus content for Pride. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, that's going to be wonderful. But for now, we have the month of May, the lovely springy month of May. And for this episode, we've got a tale of two topias for you, both the you kind and the dis. Did that make sense? Utopia? Dystopia? Uh, anyway, first up from the pile of exciting new books out this month in the lead up to Pride, we've selected what I think may be the most beautiful and original to share with y'all. It's a collection of speculative stories called Uranians that uses queer difference and divestment from the normal uh, as an engine to drive five fascinating tales, including a gripping novella that follows a spaceship full of queerdos divesting from Earth entirely uh, with no plans of returning. We'll be joined by the author of that book, Theodore McCombs, to talk about it, as well as a fabulous essay that he wrote for Slate about why he still values queer utopian thinking in times of cultural backlash and state violence, like the ones we are very much living in today. Then we'll peer into what, at least for me, feels like a particularly dark corner of our times, the reality dating show The Ultimatum Queer Love on Netflix which this season follows a cast of queer women and non-binary folks locked in a very bland Airbnb as I try to decide who they will marry by the end of the show. I'm not sure what exactly is queer about this very stressful program, but Christina and our special guest star and producer June are here to take us through it. So we'll have all that, plus our prides and provocations and usual monthly updates to the gay agenda. But before we get into it, Christina, you had a special announcement for the Thoughts and Queries mailbag for June, I think, right? Yeah, so we were hoping to hear from our beautiful listener community, what are y'all doing for Pride? How are you feeling about Pride this year? Uh, next month, as I said, we're going to have a few bonus episodes in addition to our regular episode um, and we'd love to hear from you from all corners of this planet that we haven't yet divested from. <laughs> What's going on this June? You can send us a voice memo. It's thrilling to us to hear your voices. 
at outwardpodcast at slate.com or just send us a note and we'll read it aloud for you. If you have any pride questions for us, we're experts and we'd be happy to answer. <laughs> yeah. So on that note, prides and provocations. Brian, how are you feeling this month? So, you know, normally prides and provocations we reserve for extending those within the community. You know, it's for our own folks. But this month I'm going to extend just an honorary pride, uh, a rare honorary pride, externally to the many, many prosecutors and investigators who are finally bringing George Santos to justice (laughs) and hopefully away from our consciousnesses in the near future. I have to say, I've been worried over these last, whatever it is, like five, six months that he's been sort of in front of us, that his ability to hang on was turning him into a bit of a camp figure. Oh my God, yes. Like, if not a, not a, maybe not a hero, but like tolerated at least, and certainly, you know, memefied and that kind of thing. This was bad for everybody. It was especially bad for the gays. I do not want to find myself amused by this man, Mm -hmm. uh, who is a alleged criminal, pretty much clearly a criminal, and I don't want him associated with my people. So I think it was a great early pride gift to have him charged with a litany of federal charges and arraigned the week that we are recording. Um, These included stealing public funds, money laundering, lying on federal disclosure forms, campaign finance violations of plenty, and of course there are many other investigations ongoing. Again, let's let this queen have her trial or trials. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we can get her out of the discourse as soon as possible. And many thanks again to the legal eagles who are doing that that wonderful work for the community. Well, guess what, Brian? I'm also feeling proud this month. Oh, wonderful. I feel like I've been on a little roll here. Um, Something about spring has made me feel more optimistic. Brighter. Uh Um, So there's this town of about 2,000 people in rural Ontario um, that was having a drag story time last month. Dozens of protesters showed up. You know, it's a story we've heard from all across the country and now, I guess, the continent. Uh, According to reports, they were there for two hours, screaming, accosting parents who were walking in with their kids, calling them pedophiles. But those protesters were met by five silver butch leather dykes who showed up on their motorcycles to be a buffer for the performers and the families attending the event. They escorted them into the venue And I just want to recommend this beautiful CBC report about 70-year-old Patricia Ginn of Strathroy, Ontario, who was one of these helpers. She was there with a few other members of this motorcycle club they have called Wind Sisters. Yes. She's already planning on going to two more drag story times in the area. And she told the CBC, I want our children to be able to safely walk into a library for story time on Saturday morning in small town Ontario without harassment. Mm. A simple wish that I hope is granted. You know, those who know me know I have a giant soft spot for silver butches. I just feel like this is such a beautiful example of queers coming together across generations, across gender, for a common cause. And there's this very sweet photo in this CDC report of these five silver dykes on bikes in leather vests posing with the drag queen. It honestly made me proud, capital P, to be just part of this broad and diverse family full of people who stick up for each other and protect each other. So proud of Patricia Ginn and her wind sisters and also the drag performers who made a fun story time happen in rural Ontario in spite of these protesters. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. And there's been a number of things like that. I think it's called the parasol patrols I've seen popping up, things like that. So 
yeah, love love to see community sort of protecting community in that way. Um, yeah. And just, yeah, like you said, a simple, simple wish, right? Like story time, like let it happen. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. For just about as long as queer people have been able to think about ourselves as a group, whether that group was imagined as something spiritual, political, or even biological, like on the order of a separate species, there have been those among us who felt that we were, well, better. (laughs) That our distance or dismissal from the norms of cis-hetero life granted us a special insight, vision, or even maybe a kind of magic. And by extension, that if we were able to do things our way, we might be able to create a better world perhaps even a queer utopia. This is one of the core notions that Theodore McCombs explores and interrogates across Uranians, his new collection of speculative fiction out this month from Astra House, which takes us from a mysterious Berlin nightclub haunted by parallel realities, to a turn-of-the-century gallows, to a generation ship hurtling through space with an exceedingly odd and, I think, very queer mission. He's also written a companion essay for Slate, going into the philosophical background of the collection and explaining why he thinks queer utopian uh, thinking should be appealing to us even now. Ted's stories have appeared in places like Guernica and Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he also practices environmental law in San Diego. This is his first book, and it is a remarkable debut. Ted, we're absolutely thrilled to have you on Outward. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so let's start with the sort of thematic origin of the collection, which is a very real person from our actual past. Uh, You write about this in the essay for Slate, but I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about Edward Carpenter, his idea of the Uranian, and why you were sort of drawn to that vision in the first place. So it's interesting to think about Edward Carpenter and his position in queer history because he's almost an exact contemporary to Oscar Wilde, Mm -hmm. who, of course, gets all the mentions in the history books. Mm. And Oscar Wilde is this very particular figure of the homosexual. He is urbane. He's very witty. He's decadent. He's fabulous in so many ways. But Edward Carpenter is... Another homosexual we've sort of learned to appreciate a little bit better maybe these days. Um, Someone who is incredibly earnest and a little square. And uh, he's just full of ideals. He wants the world to be better. He wants animals to be treated better. And he wants the environment to be treated better. And he's a feminist. And he's a socialist who's fighting for the working class. He's 
engaged in the world in a way that Oscar Wilde found maybe corny or just <laughs> right. too um, just too mundane. So he's a really useful counterpoint to think about these two figures together. And I think, for me at least, I connect to Carpenter's example a lot better as someone who really is trying to locate in his queerness an opportunity to better the world. Tell us a little bit about this idea of the Iranians, because that is the title of the both the novella that's in this collection and the collection itself. Um, what did he mean by that, and why did you sort of take it up? Yeah, so Iranians is a term that comes from um, Ulrich's. Uh, his earning uh, was the term that he used yeah. in his early tracks on sexology. And the notion comes from Plato, that there are basically two kinds of love. There's the procreative love that uh, is sort of familiar to everyone. And then Uranian love is sort of a higher notion of love that's not bound up in the reproductive cycle, that has this sort of heavenly orientation. And so Carpenter takes that up because it's a really nice way to position our difference. It's not something that we're apologizing for, right? There's actually a way in which uh, this is has a sort of moral equality with um, with heterosexuality. Mm. Uh, and or superiority. Think, oh, or superiority, exactly. <laughs> uh, let's start with equality yeah, and then yeah, like, yeah. work our way Don't on. Scare um, them away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it, he found it a very useful um, term for that reason. Like All of the terms at the time were you know, either had very negative biblical Mm. connotations or they were sort of um, these weirdly pathologized medical terms like invert. There's there's something sort of backwards about us or or upside down. And Uranian is a a really useful starting point for a vision of queer utopia. Um, And I hit upon it as I was trying to title my collection, uh, originally, this was not the title that mm-hmm. appeared anywhere, but when I was thinking about where the stories in the book were headed and also this sort of speculative fiction that r- these conceits that run through all of the stories, it just landed in my lap mm-hmm. like a small miracle. Ted, I can't say enough great things about this book. I mean, it's it like sent my mind spinning into so many different directions. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the the title piece, the novella, which is just incredibly rich, I think kind of blurs the boundaries of utopia and dystopia. Just to give our listeners a little summary, it's about these 2,500 people who are emissaries from Earth out of the solar system. They're on this ship trying to reach a distant planet and live there for a while just to tell people back on Earth what it's like. They have to spend 81 years or something like that on the ship They're tattooed with this drug that slows their aging so that they will still have time to live when they get there. And it just so happens that the ship has mostly queers on it because they had to screen people out who, you know, were invested in rearing children because that's something that, you know, you would want to do on Earth. I want to know what to you is the significance of queer and trans people being the ones willing to embark on this mm-hmm. like really emotionally and psychologically treacherous journey and obviously physically treacherous journey just to see and interpret and report back on this new world. Uranians is all about leaving Earth and leaving behind the structures that we associate with Earth in uh, in terms of a 
kind of heterosexual living and a, a normal lifestyle, right? There's this uh, schedule that we're supposed to keep, that we raise children, that we uh, take the jobs that let us raise children, that we uh, follow a particular plan for our lives. And in very practical story terms, they have to leave that behind to go on this mission to do something extraordinary. But thematically, that's sort of the promise of the queer experience, is that if you leave behind these structures that promise safety and normalcy and all the sort of false promises of a normal life, then you really have an opportunity to do something extraordinary with yourself and uh, to do something maybe better. There is one particular element of that promise that you pull out that was really interesting to me, which is, you know, without spoiling too much, the one of the characters, sort of the main character in this novella, develops this theory that part of the reason why the people on the ship occasionally experience like an overwhelming depression is that they're still attached to what people on Earth think. There's, you know, a way for them to sort of communicate across vast time and distance um, with Earth, and they're still sort of hung up on, you know, our, is our art winning awards back on Earth and stuff like that. <laughs> and you... You ask in the piece, are Earth's prizes even relevant to space art? Can you explain how you feel that sort of concept or that question relates to our queer lives on Earth? This is a very personal part of the story for me because, and I imagine this experience may be common across a number of queer people, is you know, I spent a lot of time in the closet and I was very adept at sort of reading situations and understanding what people wanted from me um, yeah. uh, from a straight version of me. Right. That's that's the covering that we're all familiar with, mm -hmm. that imitation uh, and, and sometimes very expert imitation of the forms of straightness. And we become very fluent in reading those forms and and executing them. And I think we carry that with us even after we come out so that we're, there's, at least in some of us, there's an instinct to orient ourselves to like, okay, what am I supposed to be doing? What is expected of me? What does the situation call for? And that translated over to the novella very well in the sense that this is a, an expedition that's being funded uh, by... Uh, <laughs> a very shadowy foundation that is extracting value from all these artists and thinkers who are on this expedition. They're monetizing their art. They're asking them to post on a, on a version of social media. They're doing all the things that, um, you know, capitalist art making expects of artists. And so there's this way in which the, even though they are rocketing away from Earth, they are still loyal to Earth's forms and structures and thinking and that is creating increasing uh, problems for them and so that seemed like a really useful way to examining that uh, instinct to play it straight still to still try to uh, imitate or at least uh, be congruent with um, the forms that we ideally left behind. And, and that's sort of a through line through the early stories also. You see yeah, yeah. in the very first story a, a gay person who is really messed up because he is still not sure how different he wants to be right. from everybody else. Um, and that question of do we even want to be different is a very painful one, but I think mm -hmm. it's an important one to ask of ourselves before we can really get into the, the fun liberation stuff. Yeah. 
Another through line through, I think, most or all of the stories is um, climate disaster. Um, that's something that, that sort of shows up, if not in the foreground, certainly in the background of what's going on. And as I said in the introduction, uh, you're a climate lawyer, and that's the sort of specialty you're in. Can you talk a little bit about how those two, you know, the role of, of lawyer informed uh, the writing in this case? Yeah, you know, they don't really seem to relate at first, right? Um, but I think there's a way in which when we're thinking about getting outside systems of normalcy and stepping, getting a perspective that's uh, outside those structures, that's very relevant to climate change as well. Because at least in the U.S., our emissions are really wrapped up in this idea of, of the American dream, right? right? It's the cars on the road. It's the electricity and air conditioning in our gigantic suburban homes. It's the resource extraction that's required to maintain this very privileged lifestyle. And if you look at the politics of climate change, a lot of that is located in this grievance that anyone would try to take that American dream away from us, like hands off my gas stove, stove, hands off my SUV and my suburban sprawl. And so, you know, I don't think queerness is the silver bullet to that, but I think it's an important part of the conversation of like, you know, where have we seen this before? Where have we seen people who have successfully stepped outside of this vigorously defended narrative of what the good life is? Mm. Um, That seems like a necessary part of the puzzle. And not to be too blunt about it, but obviously queer people have kids also, and they have, uh, you know, the same sort of nuclear family loyalties that that creates. But for me, I don't have kids, and it's a really useful thing uh, in climate work to sort of not be uh, so wrapped up in dread in what's going to happen to the next generation. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a real psychic cost in this line of work. Interesting. And... As a queer person, it comes in in handy to be able to sort of say, well, I'm doing this for everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm doing this for the principles and because I believe in a world for all life, et cetera, et cetera, without the sort of like, Jesus, what's going to happen to my my son, my daughter? um, Yeah, and also to show that you don't have to have personal children to care about what's going to happen to their generation. Right. Right. Um, I think there's a way in which queer people have an opportunity to practice a different kind of connectedness because those familial bonds, they're so strong, but they also can tend to collapse uh, everything into that, Uh you know, relationship to the next generation uh, or, or relationship to a particular child. And I think something that uh, queerness is really great about generating other kinds of connections like the found family, the broader notions of community. Uh, I think those are important in when we're thinking about climate and what we're doing, not just to human communities, but to non-human communities. One of the things that struck me in reading all of the stories in this collection is just how much imagination, it sounds silly to say, but like <laughs> obviously your imagination is in, incredibly strong. I, can you share, you know, how you came up with one or two of the sort of animating ideas behind a few of these stories, all of which are often like a world we recognize with one little thing different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh gosh, these are, these were generated over about a five or six year period. Uh, And they each have their own 
origin stories. Uh, the, the first story, you know, it's very actually simple. I I went to Berlin and I didn't get into Bergai. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I need to process this in the story. Yeah, I'm in that Right, and, and I was like, actually, this this may be... And I'm like, God, of course they turned me away. I'm not I'm not, I'm not supposed yeah. to be in Bergheim. That's not for me. <laughs> it's, it's fine, yeah. <laughs> I am a very square queer, uh, and it's... <laughs> You know, uh, like, whatever. It, it, oh my god, uh, I'm going to Berlin in October and you guys just made me really scared. I, or at least prepared. You, I guess I need to psychically prepare myself for not getting in. Maybe don't It's an amazing this. experience. I, I, I'm so glad that this happened. Yeah. Uh, and like, I got a story out of it. I got, a, yeah. I got a first story out of it. But that experience of being analyzed, you know, we always have this suspicion that we're doing queerness wrong, mm-hmm. right? Like, that, that seems... I don't know if I should universalize like that, but it's sort of this persistent idea that there's a right way and a wrong way to be queer. And so you're literally standing in line and being evaluated on whether you are properly queer in a particular kind of way for this um, this space that is, Mm -hmm. to its credit, is really invested in curating a particular kind of atmosphere. Um, And that's why it's so amazing is because it does sort of defend the standard of difference and nonconformity and liberation that it's not going to tolerate any kind of threat to that. Hmm. That story, which is about, as you mentioned, this gay club in Berlin that apparently, you know, due to its psychoactive style of techno music, you can... There's the promise of seeing other versions of yourself while you're there. There's particle physics involved here, which you explain a little bit about. You know, you write that every particle is an ensemble of self-versions until fixed by someone else's gaze. That kind of made me think about both the infinite possibilities available to us via queerness and transness, but also the sort of dual-edged uh, privilege and disprivilege of being seen and sort of the, mm-hmm. how visibility can kind of cut both ways. Um, it can be flattening or it can be validating. Is that Absolutely. something that, that you thought about as well? Yeah, and that goes back to this idea of, of who you're playing for, right? Are you exhibiting yourself in the world because it's an expression of your genuine self or are you playing a particular angle for a particular crowd. And that's that that image that happens in Uranians of like the painted crowd on the walls of the theater that you are always sort of like you have in mind. And I think that connects very much to the, the protagonist's problem in the first story, which is about, you know, playing to expectations. There's a way in which by trying to play to someone's expectations, you almost become a parody of them hmm. and you get a resistance. Um, it's like, God, that's that's not what I'm looking for at all. That's, that's something grotesque, actually. So I think um, there's a way in which the first story the protagonist begins a journey about letting go of expectations mm-hmm. that is complete in the final story um, mm. with a different character. And I love that structure of an argument from the first story to the last story. You look at every protagonist in these stories, they get a little further down that line as yeah. the, the stories go on. The role of quantum physics in the first story, I, I think that's one of the things, the very generative... Um, approaches that I had for these stories was to take something in the physical world, right? An aspect of physics, uh, an aspect of ecology, 
and really just explore the beauty of that idea. That's a trick in science fiction that um, I think the, the Chinese science fiction writer Sishin Liu does incredibly well. He's a master at teasing out the just sort of the inherent poetry in laws of physics. And that was a real source to draw from for each of these stories is, you know, I, I think in the second story, which is all about memory, understanding how memory actually works in the brain okay to, yeah. was, was one of the most beautiful experiences I had in writing these. That kind of orientation to the beauty that's already in the world and that doesn't need um. to be created it just needs to be teased out and sort of framed in a way that people can understand it i think that is part of the ethic of interconnectedness that we need for you know a climate solution is to just look and see and appreciate i'm glad that you brought that up because i i really wanted to compliment you on your writing and this is exactly in that vein and in, in like picking up the scientific concept and then just like you know, a paragraph into explaining it, turning it into this beautifully poetic literary sort of uh, device that just that made so much more meaning beyond just just the beauty of the thing itself. That, I think you're you're extremely talented at that, and I want our readers to know. And speaking of which, we've been talking sort of about the concepts and this the things driving these stories, but I really want for our listeners to get to hear some of the prose. Do you have a little passage that you might like to read, just so we could hear a bit of it? They'd met in New York at an LGBT lawyer's meet and greet. Peter, the paralegal at a one-name divorce shop, and Fran, the junior associate at a white-shoe midtown firm. Neither one had bored the other, always a promising sign. Both were pleased to find someone at the event who looked with any interest above the horizon of gay professional ambition. Fran struck Peter as something beautiful and barely contained. His long, aristocratic face was freshly shaved but already shadowing, his black hair was combed flat but wavy, and his bushy brows unplucked. He had a master's in philosophy of science and a Feynman diagram tattooed across his collarbone, visible when he leaned close and loosened his tie. Peter's knees went buttery, Fran led him into a bathroom stall and yanked his pants down, and Peter burst into tears and confessed in breathy shudders how he was sick of one-night stands, and he wanted a boyfriend for once, a real boyfriend. Fran, mortified and offended, listened gallantly enough. It was a testament to them both that Fran had taken Peter's number and had called him anyway. But for two years and one month, Fran seemed to wait in that stall for the Peter who'd followed him there, convinced there was another tour of man concealed under all his romantic hysteria. Someone who'd go out with Fran to techno parties, to leather bars, to protests and punk shows. And Peter had taken up the humiliating task of explaining he'd given Fran the wrong idea. He really was the conventional, homonormative, cliché. He really did want to shop for bathroom fixtures together and sit on the same side of a restaurant booth. He wanted to see La Traviata in box seats, like in Pretty Woman, or meet at the top of the Empire State Building, like in Sleepless in Seattle, and not because he'd failed to grasp the false consciousness of the heteropatriarchy, but because he'd spent his life being shown and then denied this way of being in love, and now he was a grown-up and he could get the things he saw on TV. So they tried it Peter's way. Peter saved up for a new suit, and they went to a gay bar styled as a private club, with a snobby dress code and potted rubber trees, and bartenders in tight tuxedo shirts and black velvet bow ties, and warm lamps reflected in mahogany paneling. The crowd skewed older and elegant. Peter drank gimlets and warbled about the Metropolitan Opera, and Fran wondered if the universe was a hologram, 
until Peter went to wash his hands, and when he came back, Fran was furiously explaining to a pearl-haired man in a silver double-breasted that he wasn't a hooker. <laughs> the silver man in a, called Fran Coy. And that's what the bar was, they realized. All the well-dressed young men of color hung beside mature white gentlemen like this asshole, and while Fran sometimes passed for white, his accent gave him away. That night, Fran didn't want to be touched. When they did have sex, and the months after, dark emotions humidified the room. Jealousies, resentments, a grave dominance from Fran, and a cringing sweetness from Peter that shamed them both. Differences clarified. Fran chafed at monogamy, and Peter lost color at the idea of cruising. Fran smoked, and Peter asked him to quit. But when Fran got a job in Miami, Peter followed him. To risk everything for love, what could be more exciting? And together they leased a high-ceilinged one-bedroom in Brickell, and Fran left him ten weeks later. At the time, there were brush fires raging in the Everglades, and the sky was a foggy nuclear orange, blowing with ash. One afternoon, they'd gone out for Cuban coffee with an old friend of Fran's, J.B., a Haitian butch activist with mild dwarfism, and J.B. and Fran had railed together over a recent profile of gay newlyweds in New York Magazine. The men in the photos were matching pastel sweater vests and identical cowlick haircuts, they were young, smiling, tidy, their skin white as candles. One posed with an old book on the couch, while behind him his husband gleefully vacuumed. <laughs> J.B. fumed, this isn't radical, this isn't queer. Fran mimed vomiting. Out on the patio, they'd squinted into the bruised air and Peter spat ash from his lips. He said, but what if this is what they want? Fran looked at Peter with pain and a reproach, the way he did whenever Peter told an embarrassing story about himself. Peter asked, is it so wrong to want to be normal? Even with JB right there, who would never be led into that word, normal, Peter had asked, is it so wrong to want to be normal? And so, as they drove back to Brickle in the blur of Ashfall, Fran apologized to him in that seething, accusing parody of an apology for not seeing the truth of their relationship sooner. Portrait of Thank a relationship. You, yeah, I love, yeah. love that. <laughs> Given that it sounds like the questions or concepts animating these pieces feel personal to you, is there any way that you came out different after writing mm. them? Did it help you process anything? Mm. Oh, absolutely. For one, I, I learned a lot. I, I mean, I had to do a lot of research for this book, you know, specifically on opera as the last of the <laughs> right, shows. Right, and sure. I came away with... You know, I know La Traviata really well now, and I have a much <laughs> deeper appreciation of Verdi. But no, I think the the journey that the characters take across these stories is a journey that I had to take in order to write these stories. Mm. It's I really had to let go of a particular hang-up that's pretty common, I think, among early career writers of sort of thinking about what you're supposed to write mm. and um, what the sort of conventions of a literary... Uh, you know, sort of mainstream literary work are. Uh, I think speculative fiction has been really good for me. It's a lot more disreputable. <laughs> <they're saying. laughs> right, right. And that gives you, that sort of operates the same way queerness does. It like yeah. places you outside the bounds of respectability in a certain way that 
you can have more fun and and be more honest and genuine and come up with weirder shit. You can have this sort of chaotic writing impulse and follow it and it comes out in very strange ways and they're wonderful. And learning to trust that and nurture that and celebrate that has been a big part of how this book came to be. Well, I think that is about all the time that we have for this segment, but um, I just want to remind our listeners that Uranians is out on May 30th wherever books are sold you should buy it get a copy of the book somehow share it with your friends it's really really fantastic and special and also please check out uh, Ted's accompanying essay that it will be out in Slate when this podcast drops Ted thank you so so much for joining us and for just writing this incredible collection of stories thank you so much for having me when the trailer for the ultimatum queer love dropped I promptly heard about it from like five different people in my life. And you know why? It's not often or <laughs> almost ever that we get an all queer, predominantly lesbian dating show. Mm -hmm. But obviously dating shows are way more interesting when gays are involved, both for gender reasons and also we're a lot better at processing our feelings out loud. So while I don't usually love reality shows, I was interested in this, and obviously so many of my friends were. It delivered. <laughs> <laughs> First, before we get into the quality of the show, I uh, just want to explain the premise, which is absolutely unhinged as and these kinds of things always like, are. And so confusing. And like a little disjointed, like I'm not sure how all the different components of it are supposed to relate to the ultimate goal. Anyway, yeah. five couples show up, each one having one partner who has issued dun, 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 the ultimatum, which is basically marry me or let's break up. So the couples spend their first week in this, I guess, resort where they're staying, going on dates with each other. And because it's gay, everyone goes on dates with everyone. So there's, you know, I'm not good at um, this type of math, but there's like <laughs> infinite numbers of combinations. Infinite. Yeah. <laughs> if it's above 50, it's infinite. Um, at the end of the week, they pair up with someone who's not their partner. In fact, they start calling their partner their ex. Mm -hmm. And they go on to have a trial marriage, which means live together for three weeks. Mm -hmm. Then they get back together with their original partners and see if they want to get married or not. By the irreversible, unchallengeable rules of reality TV, at the end of that time, they either have to get engaged, break up, or embark on a relationship with their trial marriage partner. Y'all, why don't we pause for a second just to hear a clip so, so everybody can get a sense of <laughs> what's going on in uh, The Ultimatum. I feel like that we have a connection that I'm never going to find again and. I don't honestly want to look for it again, but I want to be married, and I'm not sure if Vanessa's willing to do that or not. <laughs> I love you so much, but I never envisioned a long-term relationship. I don't want permanency, and I don't want stability. I want freedom. That's not really what marriage consists of. So apparently this show has had one previous season last year with straight people, which I think seems like it would be boring because here two partners can be dating the same person before they pair off, which is kind of inherently exciting. 
And also when you're watching queer people do this, there's a lot less weird kind of gender stuff that I have to work my brain around and sort of suspend my criticism of. This season is filmed in San Diego. I cannot stop watching it. The first four episodes drop the same day as this podcast episode, May 24th, and then they'll sort of be rolled out on a consistent basis after that. June, I know you have been similarly sucked in by this show. What were your impressions of the first four episodes, which we'll be reviewing today? It was like, uh, you know, having one really delicious shortbread and then knowing you, you will be eating the whole tin before, <laughs> you know, before the day is over. Just such a beautifully British mm. analogy. <laughs> I mean, I do not watch this kind of show, not because I'm a snob. I mean, I am a snob, but that's not why I don't watch them. <laughs> it's that when they're on network TV, they're so strung out. I've tried to watch them. I've tried mm. to like be part of the group. And it's like what should take 10 minutes takes an hour and a half. And even if you can fast forward, it's just not worth it. On streaming, there's not a lot of time wasting. I actually thought it was remarkably There was one episode where they're all picking their trial marriage partner where I thought mm. it it got drawn out a little long. but by and large yeah. i would agree with you like yeah, two agreed. episodes yeah yeah the, yeah the, the whole process of the picking they did make a little bit of a meal of that but otherwise yeah i was absolutely enraptured and for for multiple reasons there's the will she won't they kind of uh, uh will they get together there's those questions mm -hmm. you know the question that they want us to think about but there are all these other things of like wait can that woman who kind of presents as femme get together with that other woman who presents as femme? I believe that only one of them exclusively uses they, them pronouns, some uh, offer she, her, they. But that was itself like kind of the exciting part of the like restructuring at the beginning. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've never had to kind of wonder about that before while watching television. And then there was kind of the kind of frustration of, the sexuality of it, which I'm sure we'll get to, like, you know, you've talked a lot on this show about how whenever we try to kind of take a something that has been a heterosexual form, like the rom-com, bring queer right. people to it, we get stuck with this with this kind of structure that doesn't fit. Well, here again, marriage for <laughs> marriage's sake, why are we why are we interested in that? And yeah. then, you know, the kind of the lack of sex that, that it yes. kind of weirdly ends up with. But anyway. Yeah. That's not what you asked me. <laughs> Basically, I was just completely enraptured by it. Brian, what about you? Yeah, what Brian, you? you described this in your intro, which I thought was really overly dramatic as dystopian, <laughs> I guess. As a gay man, do you feel like this gave you any insight into lesbian life? Um, oh, that's, that's a hotter question than I thought you were going to ask. Uh, <laughs> I hope not. Well, I also want to hear why you think it's dystopian. Well, I'll answer that question. I, I kind of hope not, because I, I felt like what this presented, because of this strange, confusing structure and just, like, insanity, you know, baseline insanity of a reality dating show, I wondered how much it had to do with lesbian life or, or queer mm -hmm. love, as, like, the tagline Fair. puts it. You know, like, it's, it's sort of pitched as an exploration of that, and it didn't seem very queer to me at all. It seemed quite fixated on pretty standard uh, heterosexual ideas about what a relationship looks like, what, what makes one successful, which of course is marriage to some degree, but also the things within marriage, like sharing the chores the right way or whatever, <laughs> like that this spent a lot of time on. I, I really didn't like this. I don't know. I, I found it kind of like stressful 
and not offensive exactly. Not, not I wouldn't wow. go so far as to like, I don't know. You level don't think like it was a, bad for the gays. No, I wouldn't say that. I don't think so. But but it was definitely. Um, I didn't understand what it was trying to like prove exactly because hmm. I would hope that the queer people involved in that model of sort of the structure of the show would like understand. Like I don't know why you would put yourself through that in the first place. I guess I'm kind of maybe it's like a dumb question because it's like people want to be on TV. Like I, I get that, but the concept of like treating relationships so shallowly and then acting as if marriage is not a sort of serious thing at the end. I don't know. I, I found it very confusing throughout. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm not quite sure what the let's have a trial marriage with somebody different has to do with it. Other than that, it feels like perhaps they're trying to suggest that one of the main reasons people don't want to get married is because they're wondering if there's someone better out there. Right, and this gives right, them the chance right. to try it out. But what it really ends up doing is kind of thrusting them very quickly into like the most intense parts of polyamory, like dating somebody <laughs> right. in literally the same location as your partner is oh, dating somebody else. Yeah. And like you're watching each other like develop a relationship with somebody else and then those like your partner goes and talks to the other person mm -hmm. who you're now dating to like exchange advice about you and it doesn't feel like any of these people particularly came into the experience wanting to explore non-monogamy but that's right. like exact and it's not even clear to me that they've even discussed beforehand whether they're uh, quote unquote allowed to have sex with their mm -hmm. trial marriage partner such that when some of them do, yes, even though none of them really have chemistry, no. but some of them somehow make it work, it, there's like real anger involved. Yeah. Um, and then they're all sort of left to process this with like under the conditions of extreme intoxication, it seems yes, like. Yes. Which they're always drinking out of these stainless steel martini glasses and champagne flutes, which for me was like the most contrived and unrealistic part of the show that like really took me out of the moment, which I guess is for continuity. So you can't see uh, the different levels of drink. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Christina. Cause I wondered about that because even when they were like not in the, you know, ultra contained environment, that was so, thank you for explaining why they had to do that. Cause that would drive me by. I think that's what it is. At first I yeah. thought it's, was so they didn't keep breaking glasses when they were all drunk, but I'm pretty sure it's for like editing and continuities. And they were like drunker on average than I'd say most reality things that I've dipped into. I mean, that's a common yeah. a common thing, but I felt like I don't know something about this scenario was a little worse. Uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. well, I wanted to respond, Christina, what you said about about the sex, basically, because I found that really comes up in the fourth episode of the ones that we saw, um, where people sort of do it. <laughs> like, it's like three three different couples, I think, finally hook up in some way. Um, three or two. Or maybe, yeah, maybe just two. two maybe just two. Or two. one yeah. and a half. Um, and it generates, like you said, this, like, intense anger um, that made me, like, very confused. I was like, wait, well, of course people are hooking up, but you're, you've gone into, like, a pressure cooker situation where you're having to sleep together, literally, just, like, in a in the same bed and, and when you pair off with your, your trial yeah. marriage. And it's and, a trial marriage! And, but <laughs> marriage, like, mostly, like, most of them involve sex. All of these people were attacking uh, Vanessa, who's, who's sort of figured in these first four episodes to be, like, maybe a little unstable and, like, the villain or something she had hooked up with her her 
trial wife. <laughs> and uh, they were all like, basically, like, you whore, you whore, how could you do it? Like, it was, like, so crazy and, like, sex yeah. shamey and retrograde and very, like, controlling of that other person, I thought, yeah. that, and did not feel very lesbian to me. Like, I, I might say, I don't know. It was, it was like, a strange, very strange energy, a very conservative energy that I felt like the yeah. show generated alongside all of this language of, like, trial marriages and she will make a good wife which is like what people said a lot yeah. it felt like 19th yeah. century like religious <laughs> yes. like yes. Max, i was like what is she will make a goodly wife like what are you like what are we talking about <laughs> um, yeah, like what does that entail i mean obviously it doesn't entail like being good at cooking and housework and stuff which is what that phrase has maybe historically meant yeah they're like you know she, she would be like a good communicator but <laughs> a lot of what they're saying it means is still a very like attached to a very conservative yeah. and heterosexual vision of marriage which is like they're ready to commit to someone exactly. they like want kids and like think about families and think about stability which like doesn't have to be part of marriage and so i, I feel like maybe this is not an original comment to make about a dumbass reality <laughs> show but like they're using marriage as yeah. this container to fit in a lot of very like legit feelings and goals that people might have in a relationship that don't have to be associated with marriage. But, and it's interesting to me that it's really only in the past, you know, decade that marriage could be used in a queer reality show in this way, where yeah. it's just something anyone can do. And so we can associate these concepts that we already had in our relationships or like different preferences that we had with this specific institution to create a little more drama. Yeah, the thing about this show is there's a weird contradiction with sometimes there, as, as you've both said, like there's this very lesbian kind of processing mm -hmm. and communicating that's yeah, very kind that. of labored, but also, honestly, I kind of loved it. But then at the yeah. same time, there are certain very basic questions that at least, you know, I always have to be aware that in the edit that we see created by the yeah, people who true. put this show together, there's no conversation or no even mention of these very basic elements like, what do you mean when you say marriage? Is it literal benefits? Do you want health insurance? <laughs> because, yes, yeah, some of, some of the, the, the things that people talk about, they're so retrograde uh, that it's just, it's just mind-blowing. But I guess you just have to not think about that at a certain point and just like, okay, this is what they've said they'll do on television. <laughs> but then you still get that thing of like, again, Vanessa, the villain of the piece, the only person who actually is willing to be a little bit, um, you know, not going along with things, is accused of being there for the wrong reasons, which is so classic reality TV. Yeah. Even someone like me who doesn't watch it right, recognizes right. that trope. But tell me what the real reason is and see if I can not scream because of how crazy <laughs> it is. You know, like, what do you even mean? It's, it's all, it's, yeah. So I will say, I was surprised, though, by how much being in a trial marriage, <laughs> whatever they are doing, <laughs> being in, like like you said, just the most aggressively bland hotel room looking right. you know, rental condos or whatever, actually prompted people to pretty quickly recognize problematic patterns of behavior yeah. in each other yeah. that were proved to be true when they then went back to their trial wife's or trial spouse's partner and be like, does Tiff usually have problems communicating about this? And they're like, yes. About the dog. It's so hard to, or you can't get Aussie to, you know, Aussie's full of trauma and triggers. And when they're in a triggered state, you know, you've got to wait for them to do their meditation app and then you can talk to them. And like best yeah. line is when is she, is she ever fully meditated? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
that was good. Yeah. <laughs> that was good too. And so I'm like, oh yeah, maybe there's something about being put in this incredibly stressful and contrived situation mm-hmm. that allows people to recognize certain things about themselves. Like that maybe when you're in a long-term partnership and it's had time to develop over time and you get into this groove together, you don't really know. But when you're forced to all of a sudden sleep in bed with a stranger, and I did think it was weird that they were all cuddling before they had yes. even kissed. Yes. I was like, yes. I don't know. It just yeah. felt really awkward to me. But um, yeah, yeah, it was actually a slightly seemed slightly more productive than I would have initially anticipated. Yeah, the, there were moments uh, that seemed so perfect. Like I think at least three of them brought their dogs. Like they'd left the world. Oh my God, yeah. there was yeah. a little bit yeah. of a myster- that was another super gay part of the show. Yeah, totally. So there was a slight mysterious. Sometimes I did want to know, like. What it, what have you done with your real life? Are you still living? Yeah, do they all you know? live in San Diego? Yeah, and, yeah. you know it, that that was kind of bugging me. Uh, there were certain points where like something would be mentioned that it happened. You're like, you know, Ossie is hanging out with Ossie's friends, and Ossie isn't making dinner for right. Mildred in in the way that Ossie had promised. And why is there now this external world that I'm not being shown? Which you never have that feeling of. of being left out of something on a on a reality show, they're always showing you way more than you ever want. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the dogs. Back to the dogs. So at least three dogs appeared once mm-hmm. we're in trial marriage, and the most sort of spectacular of those was Tiff, basically oh announcing that their dog was their baby, <sighs> and that the dog was the priority. And Sam hadn't even. <laughs> said anything about about it hadn't had any problems and and tiff had already like lost their shit about also it's a gigantic husky that tiff said must sleep in the bed with them which sounds so hot to me (laughs) and you're in san diego that was one of the craziest fights like escalations of a fight and indeed probably is edited as you say but like even so like the escalation from like (laughs) No comment about the dog. Maybe saying that like yeah. well, it's hard. It'll be hard to sleep with the dog in the bed, and both of us are small beds. They, they really, push <laughs> yeah, them, they really push them together if they didn't want sex. It's um, a queen at most. Yeah, at most, at yeah. Most. And and like yeah, Sam said nothing about it, and then Tiff's like, you clearly don't have it in your heart to love like a dog or any animal, and like I just can't rock with that or what. I was like, what is going on? I don't yeah. want my dog to be around people who don't care about her. Yeah, I was like, that's nuts, y'all. Like, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. to chill out. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I think we should also talk about the mask femme of it all. Mm. Yes. So all but one of the couples is generally butch femme or mask femme. The exception is Ray and Lexi, who are both, I would say, femme presenting with butch energy. Mm. That's just my interpretation. Anyway, I felt kind of excited by this in part because I found it to be a foil to these rather unrealistic narrative dramas like The L Word in Mm. which people just kind of fuck their way around a community indiscriminately Mm -hmm. as if nobody has a type and as Uh, if like Mm -hmm. every lesbian could conceivably be attracted to every other lesbian or trans person. (laughs) Like obviously there are some people with a very broad range of types, not to mention by people. (laughs) You know, in general, I feel like it's not the norm that like you and your partner would be attracted to the same person or something. So for me, it was kind of nice to see a show that semi embraced a dynamic that does exist in a significant segment of our community. Mm -hmm. And it was like, 
cute and interesting to see people then start to date people whose gender presentation they weren't normally attracted mm-hmm. to and, and be surprised by that and just like open themselves up to a new kind of attraction. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there were some nice moments um, when, for example, Tiff and Mal were on yeah. a date. And I believe it was Tiff who said, you're the most masked person I've ever been on a yeah. date with. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, that, there was something very sort of sweet about that because it was yeah. a date. It wasn't just yeah. like mates going out. It was a date. So we're on this date. Yeah, I know. I'm going to say I'm I not have mad to say it. flat out. You're the most masculine person I've ever been on a date with. Fair. But yeah, fair enough. I think for now. I think you might yeah. find out yeah. later. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little different. <laughs> this is cool, though. Like, yeah. traditionally, I don't date mask. Yeah. But I'm also like, eh, fuck it, we're okay, here. We're I'm grown. Right. Like, yeah. I might have way more in common with you than anybody. I know. So I'm like, yeah. fine. Yeah. We'll figure out who top and who bottoms like another yeah, time. But like, for now, we're good. We're good. Yeah. And then, yeah, like Vanessa and Lexi go on a date and <laughs> she's just like, this is crazy. Like, you're wearing jewelry and playing with your hair and I'm into <laughs> it. Like, what's happening with me? It was very cute. That said, um, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that almost all of the people who were giving the ultimatums were femmes, mm-hmm. with the exception of Xander, who is really just one of the bumpiest bumps on a log our community has ever created. <laughs> like, oh my God, does she have a personality? <laughs> it remains to be seen. My wife and I were like laughing so hard at the point Xander is trying to tell Yoli, like, I'm a very sexual person. And they just say it in this monotone voice and their face <laughs> barely moves. And they're like, I'm a very sexual person. We're yeah. like, are you? Like, I'm getting absolutely no sexual energy from any part of you. Anyway, it just kind of goes to show queers are still affected by the expectations and socialization of gender. And it was, I, I do wish that they had talked about that a little bit more. Like, hi, I wonder why all the masks in this group are feeling like scared of commitment or, and why um, it's mostly the femmes being like, I want this. And like, I want children or I'm like ready for, I want somebody to be fully like committed to me or whatever. Yeah. I mean, and that was part of what was so depressing, you know, Mal who seemed quite cool. Yeah. um, You know, one of the best. I wanted to rescue Mal. I wanted like to pull Mal out of the show. At the same time though, they were so conservative, you know, her excuse for not wanting to get married was that they wanted to have like everything together. They wanted the job and the thing and the down payment for the, like, what yeah, I was like, down payment for about? a house. What does that have to do with marriage? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but you know what you were talking about um, with the way they presented, I kind of, you know, my own experience of that, like, I was like, oh, well, who would I, you know, whatever, we do this. We won't pretend we don't. Sure. Like, yeah, who would you, June? Well, here's the thing though, like, because we saw them in like, a supposed home setting. We also saw them when they weren't dressed up. So, you know, mm-hmm. Yoli, for example, seems so much more appealing to me when she was like in her glasses and her hair pulled back Aww. and like wasn't uh-huh. all femme. I love her every way. Yeah. I just yeah. love her style. Yeah. yeah. Totally, she used to yeah. work at Barney's. So that's like, yeah, that <laughs> explains that. Um, exactly. But yeah, I, I agree with you, June. It was also cool and an experience. Again, I'm not a reality TV show person, but like, there were moments like when they all go to the picking ceremony or whatever, where all of the femmes are in these like tight, short dresses where I'm like, yeah. it's, it feels like I'm watching The Bachelorette. Yeah. But then 
they're when you actually do get to see them in their everyday lives where I'm like, oh, you feel like more of a real person here. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The, the picking ceremony. Do you hear yourself? <laughs> I don't know if that's what it's called. <laughs> you, but... no, I think it really was like the picking dinner or something. It was so, yeah. oh God. Yeah. One thing I'm hearing uh, among all of these various strains of conversation uh, that I think is worth maybe noting for our listeners is that I think the show is just badly produced. I think, mm. like, I think, like, it's not so much the people's fault or even maybe the politics of it. But it is the the way that it has been put together is extremely confusing. It is hard to follow what's happening when and why. Mm. Like, mm. I had to go back and watch the trailer to remind myself twice, like, what the, <laughs> the overarching structure of this thing was meant to be. <laughs> the producers are not guiding the castmates very well in terms mm. of creating interest. Like, there's moments where it's kind of flat at, like, the, yeah. the group yeah. meetings because nobody knows what to say or can remember yeah. anything that happened yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and, like, June was pointing out, you don't know what's happening during the day. Like, are yeah. they working? Like, is it, yeah. like, it's like a week has passed. Oh, like, <laughs> like that's all bad. And then I think a sure sign that, that it's, that there's issues is that the the music, the scoring is all of these fake pop songs yes. that literally tell you what the emotion <laughs> is supposed to be. It's like, you know, I'm feeling up tonight. At the end of this experience, I'm going to have to make a choice. And I feel like it's going to be the biggest choice of my life. Wanna take a little time to breathe, but I can't. I feel like I literally right now. just lost a part of me. When I'm without you. But if I could choose right here, right now, to marry her, I still wouldn't. And there's one, like, every two minutes to, like, <laughs> give you a narrative of, like, how you're supposed to feel. And I think that's just, like, evidence that, like, the, the, the production hand was not quite strong enough in this to make yeah. it hold together. You know what I mean? Actually, now I'm I'm starting to feel provoked by the fact that our queer reality dating marriage show wasn't given the resources to be a better producer. And a host, and like a queer host, would have been better. But also the way that they responded when she first showed up, it was like... She was at, like, like a big stake, like, like she a car or something. Like, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I'm yeah, like, just kidding, but like, yeah, they that's the one thing the producers said. They're like, act like this is a celebrity when she walks and in, she's super yeah. hot, which, like, yeah. she is okay, but like, that's not a natural response. I mean, yeah, I, to me, the, the biggest problem was the casting. Like, there's only one person who has to have all the weight of villainy on her shoulders, mm, yeah. Vanessa. Or Vanessa. The rest, partly because most of them are pretty fucking bland right. i mean like aussie they had to bring in a friend oh from God. outside because yes no <laughs> Yeah, I and Mo was. I was like, get yeah, Mo, get, get, get Mo, yeah. get Mo. Yeah, ask exactly. all the right questions. Mo was like, what yeah. do you, what do you mean by marriage? <laughs> <laughs> where did this come from? Yeah, where did yeah, that yeah. come right. from? It's like people with such little spark in their eyes. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean. It would be hard. You must probably have such a hangover over such an extended period that it would be hard to oh, maintain God. the spark. But that's true. Yeah, that is yeah. that is true. Unfortunately, I think that's all the time oh. we have to discuss this, except for me to just note that 
Vanessa got both of her nipples pierced and said, this is step one of redefining who I am. You know what that's step one of? It's not absolutely not being able to have sex the, for this period where you're, you know, like, nobody's going to be able to you, touch Jim. her. Thank you, Thank Like, why do you get Nipple your nipples pierced right so when you're overrated. supposed to? Well, I mean, I quite like them, but, like, don't get it done when you're supposed to be having a period of intimacy. <laughs> no, you don't yeah. want anybody to go anywhere yeah. near you for absolutely weeks. Right. That's like well, you don't know that her nipples are part of her sexual practice, June. No, oh. no, they're probably not. I guess. Don't yuck someone's yuck, <laughs> <laughs> or yum someone's yuck. Anyway, anyway. Um, listeners, please tell us how you felt about this show. You can email us. We'd love to hear your voice memos on this, especially. Mm. We're at outwardpodcast at slate.com. I can't wait to watch every single other episode of this show. <laughs> hard same, Christina. Hard same. All right, y'all, that's about it for this month. But before we go, I want to hear your updates to our gay agenda. June. So I know this is probably a little, let's say, niche because I'm going to recommend something in Edinburgh where, you know, I guess potentially not so many of our uh, (laughs) listeners live. Getting the tourism board kickback. June. Exactly. Well, if, if, if the number of tourists uh, and accents that I hear on the street are any indication, just about any American with a travel budget comes here eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm. But I want to recommend the Scottish National Portrait Gallery here in Edinburgh. I've been a fan of portrait galleries for a long time. I think there's something exceedingly gay about them in general. The, everyone Explain I've been, that. Well, Maybe it's just me, but I kind of, I have a little bit of a trivia uh, gene, you know, I'm always kind of, oh, how can I prove how smart I am to myself? And so I enjoy that about portrait galleries, like, can I identify this person? Do I know who it is? And that makes me feel good about myself if I do. But also, I love to try and find queer people. Mm -hmm. And often, if for some reason I don't know who the person is, I'll, you know, kind of clock them, look them up. And yes, they were gay. Occasionally not, but I just forget about that time. But the Scottish National Portrait Gallery is honestly one of the queerest places I have ever been. Wow. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, you're writing a whole book about uh, lesbian spaces. Exactly. And, yeah, Scottish Portrait Gallery. Wow. Exactly. Well, let me just roll that back slightly. <laughs> one of the most queer and most lesbian galleries slash museums. Like there is one corner of the kind of, you know, the main exhibit area where there's five portraits. Four of them are lesbians and two of them used to be a couple, which is just about (gasps) the most lesbian thing ever. Who are they? Are they people we'd know? One is Jackie Kay and the other is Caroline. Wait, Jackie Kennedy? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's Jacqueline. Jackie Kay, the writer. uh, And the other is... um, Carol Ann Duffy, uh, who is a poet, was the Poet Laureate for a while. Mm. Um, and uh, Jackie Kay has been the marker, which is the Scottish Poet Laureate. But um, So they're writers. They used to be a couple. Now they're not, I believe. Like, just very, very gay. And it's not only, though, the contemporary galleries where the queer presence is felt. Like, even in the sort of historical section, like, there's an exploration of how some poems from the late 16th century written in Scots, the Scots language that is, although they're not credited to women, were almost certainly written by women, expressing romantic love for other women. And there's this sort of semi-detailed description of how the gallery figured that out. So basically, in short, it is a you know, massive we are everywhere uh, situation. <laughs> also, I have to mention fantastic cafe 
with some healthy <laughs> things and also just like ridiculously indulgent cakes. So basically lesbian heaven. That's a hot tip about the, both the portrait gallery, but also the cafe. I love a good museum. A good museum cafe is a special thing. I like to go, to your point about gay, gaying the thing, it's also fun to just go and like sort of camp about portraits, I feel like. Yeah, Be like, yeah. like she's in drag and like that's funny and like what's that pose about? Like like that that kind of mode of engagement is very fun to me too. I've definitely done that a lot. <laughs> Um, Brian, what have you got for us this month? Sure. So I um, was recently going on a like short uh, little road trip to visit some friends and listen to the new album from Jesse Ware. Um, June knows Jesse Ware. Uh, it's called That Feels Good. There's a two exclamation points in there. That feels good. It's Ware's fifth, fifth album. It's classic disco sound punchy brass, really lush string arrangements, fabulous uh, vocals from her and a bunch of backup singers. Um, so sexy and cool like she always is. Um, and it's just so like enveloping and, and big and wonderful. Um, and I think it's definitely going to be the soundtrack to Pride for me because it's kind of relaxed. It's not, it's not too, I'm not looking to like party hard this Pride. I'm not feeling that. But, I'm, but this is like the right sort of slightly, slightly quieter version. If you haven't heard it yet, I think Hello Love is my favorite track at the moment, but also Pearls and These Lips are good places to start. Yeah, just perfect album for sort of sliding into summer and Jesse Ware. Yeah, Christina. I'm recommending a digital exhibition from the Cornell University Library. So I think it is uh, visible in person. I'm not sure if it's still open, but anyone can see it online. It's called Radical Desire Making on Our Backs magazine. So On Our Backs, of course, was the seminal lesbian magazine of erotica and sexy photos founded in 1984. And Cornell, or, you know, a researcher at Cornell has created this big project about the history and impact of the magazine that they've made it very, like, consumable and page-throughable on their website, which I think is not super common for a library to do. It's usually a very in-person type of institution. But, you know, over the course of several pages that you can flip through, you get to know the people who made the magazine, how they ran the business, which is fascinating to me, just in terms of how different it is from to like gay media and just publications in general today. You read about how they thought about the work. They also pull out a couple particular photo shoots from the magazine to unpack and describe And I just found it to be a really fascinating portal into this particular erotic point of view that had a very devoted fan base um, who would, you know, write letters to the editor and all that. They had a bull dagger of the season instead of a, I guess, playboy playmate of the month. Uh. Um, They talk about that. And then the best part, obviously, of this digital (laughs) exhibition is the photos. You know, without going to... Any archives, you can just see all these images from the magazine, behind-the-scenes photos from the office. It is a beautifully curated collection, a real joy to look through, and just so hot. Again, it's called Radical Desire, Making On Our Backs magazine from Cornell University. All right, that's the end of the show for this month of May. Please send us feedback and topic ideas, as always, at outwardpodcast at slate.com, or you can reach out on Facebook and Twitter, for the moment at least, uh, at Slate Outward. A reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you would get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Working, and you will never, ever hit a paywall on the Slate.com site. 
to learn more about that, go to slate.com slash outward plus. June Thomas is our producer and the inexhaustible engine of queer difference upon which all of our future hopes rely. <laughs> if you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. As we mentioned, we will be back in your feeds next month for Pride with four, count them, four episodes, one dropping each Wednesday in June, as well as some queer-themed episodes from other Slate shows coming through the feed. So check that out on your phone often. And uh, please do drop us a voice memo at outwardpodcastaslate.com to tell us how you'll be celebrating, or maybe not exactly celebrating, Pride in this very weird, difficult year. Until then, bye, Christina. Bye, Brian. See you, June. Bye, Brian. Stay gay, everybody. Real deal.